As you're being seated, find 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. As today we will conclude this letter written by Paul the Apostle to this young church in the city of Thessalonica. And in these five chapters we have really covered a lot of different ideas and thoughts um, related to theology and related to, of course, the gospel, related to the return of Christ. And in the latter part, we've also really focused on application or you know, practical theology. In other words, taking the truth of God's word and applying it to our lives. And last week, as we looked at uh, part of, uh, the first part of 1 Thessalonians 5, we talked about, uh, I entitled it, Live Like This. And we, sa- we said that uh, Paul is just giving these bullet points of application. Do this, do this, do this. Like, in conclusion, I've taught you, I've given you all these, these words of wisdom f- from the Lord, and then he says, do this, do this, do this. For example, pray without ceasing was one of them, right? And so now we continue, and I just call this Live Like This Part 2, as we conclude with a few more bullet points of practical Christian living and then a final benediction or exhortation from Paul to the people in Thessalonica. So let's read beginning in verse 19. If you're there, say word. Quench not the spirit. Despise not prophecies. Prove all things, hold fast that which is good, abstain from all appearance of evil. And the very God of peace sanctify you wholly, and I pray God your whole spirit and soul and body be preserved blameless unto the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Faithful is he that calleth you, he will do it. Brethren, pray for us. Greet all the brethren with a holy kiss. I charge you by the Lord that this epistle be read unto all the holy brethren. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Amen. I'm going to dive right in to this, and I I know, as I've studied this myself this week, I know there's at least one thing in here I believe that will help every single one of us, and so I pray that our attention is turned to this word. The first point comes from verse 19, and I really couldn't think of anything better than what the actual scripture says, which obviously, so our first point is, do not quench the spirit. Do not quench the spirit from verse 19. So, My first thought on this is, let's talk for a moment about the Holy Spirit. Uh, I've mentioned this before, that years ago, I read a book on the Holy Spirit, and it was called The Forgotten God. And the author entitled it that because oftentimes in some circles, like ours, by the way, in some Baptist circles, we tend to not talk about the Holy Spirit as much as God the Father and God the Son. We kind of sometimes have forgotten Him in some way. And I think that there's a reason for that. Part of it is, right, we've seen other denominations or groups, in our opinion, misuse the Spirit or abuse it in a sense. 
And so maybe that's why, but what we all know is that God is three in one, right? We believe that from beginning to end, from Genesis to Revelation, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. We believe that, right? As a matter of fact, if you were in a church this morning that denied the Trinity, would you stay in that church? Most, I don't think any of us would. We'd be like, no, I'm going somewhere else, right? So we know God is Father, Son, Holy Spirit. We know God the Spirit uh, saves us when we're born again. It's the Spirit that applies the sacrifice of Christ that we've heard about this morning. The Spirit applies that into our hearts, and He indwells believers spiritually. And then He begins to do all these things in our lives that are so helpful for us. He convicts us of our sin, right? So we don't just keep living in sin. He convicts us about it. He enlightens us or illuminates the Scripture to us so that when we read the Bible, we're not reading it like any other book, right? We're reading it with the Holy Spirit of God speaking in our hearts, showing us the truth of what this word means. That's why a lost man can read this and say, that's that's an interesting story. And we can read this and say, no, this is God's very own word because the Holy Spirit is in our hearts telling us that. He not only convicts us and illuminates us, how about this, he helps us pray. Have you ever been in a place where you feel like you can't even really pray like you need to pray? The scripture talks about this in Romans, that when we don't even know how to pray, the Spirit prays for us. Or sometimes we need that desperately, the Spirit to help us pray. He comforts us when we are weak. As a matter of fact, the, Jesus called him a comforter. And we need that as well. He also guides believers, showing us how to live and decisions we should make as we follow his leadership in our lives. And so the Holy Spirit of God should not be forgotten or neglected or grieved or rejected or quenched. The Holy Spirit of God should be followed and loved and obeyed in our lives. And so Paul says... And I'm assuming it was happening in Thessalonica. Do not quench the spirit. That word quench is not a word we use very often. I thought about the old Gatorade commercial. Was it the Gatorade's the thirst quencher, right? So you drink this Gatorade, it'll quench your thirst, which means what? To put it out, right? Suppress it, do away with it to put it out. And, and, but the word quench here is most often used in, in a different relation, not your thirst. It's most often used related to fire and as I was kind of looking at this, I thought about one time when I was 13 years old, uh, me and my cousins would play baseball between my house and my cousin's house. We had a, a lot of land there. We had an amazing baseball field. It was such a cool experience. Friends would come and play with us, and it wasn't even called baseball. We called it Johnson Ball because it was the Johnson land. We played there. and We had an old washer and dryer that was our backstop. You had to pitch to the washer and dryer, and we had certain obstacles on the field that we couldn't move that you had to play around, and we had a great time out there. Well, one time, and I don't know when it was in the year, it had to be when it was starting to get cold, we decided out there by the on-deck circle to start a fire. That way, when you're on deck, you could warm your hands up. In between innings, we'd go up there and talk like we're the real gang. We'd warm our hands up. And, and so we started this little fire. It's, it's, you know, six or seven of us, some cousins and friends, and we're playing. And so the game ends, and I don't know who said it. Somebody said, should we put the fire out? And somebody else said, I also don't remember who said this, it'll be fine. And so we like, oh, it'll be fine. So we go inside. Now, I remember going. I, first thing I did was get some food and some drink and whatever. I'm sitting at the table eating a little bit. A little bit later, I go to our restroom. And our restroom, the, the uh, 
window points right to the backyard. And so I won't go into too much detail, but I'm walking into the restroom and I look out the window and I see something in the distance. And I pull the curtains back and I see a, no longer a small fire, but an actual fire. In my mind, it could have been a forest fire, right? I start screaming, fire, fire, dad. And I'm going to tell my dad and we run out there. We have two water hoses attached to our house. Neither one could reach the fire. We start getting five-gallon buckets, and we're trying to douse the fire, right? And at this point, it already went past this tree line into the next-door neighbor's that we didn't really know that well, yard. So fire was going everywhere. Of course, my dad is, sorry if you're watching this, dad. He was cussing us and, like, yelling at us. What are y'all doing if you're, uh, you, what are y'all doing lighting the yard on fire? And so it was my aunt or Uncle One. They went ahead and called the fire department, right? And the, the local volunteer fire department showed up, and within seconds, right, they got their stuff out, and we were, we were trying hopelessly to put that fire out. Within seconds, they got there, and they, they quenched the fire, right? They completely put it out. It was gone. We still got in trouble, <laughs> and we never lit another fire out there. But the word quench is most often used in this way to say you take something that's on fire, and you just whoosh, smother it. You suppress it. You do away with it. You put it out. So is it possible, and I'm saying yes it is, that people in Thessalonica, and even us, is it possible that in some way we can suppress or quench the Spirit's work in our lives? Now, we can't actually do away with Him, right? He is God. He is all-powerful. But we can quench the involvement or the activity He has in our lives for our good. Let me give you three ways in which we can quench the Spirit. The first one is disbelief. Disbelief. If we continually refuse to believe what God has told us to believe in his word, we can quench the Spirit's activity in our lives or his usefulness in our lives. It's kind of like, um, have any of your parents ever done this when your children were younger? Um, they keep trying to touch something hot, and you're like, don't touch that, you'll get burned. Don't touch that, you'll get burned. And eventually one parent says, well, they say, just let him touch it one time, right? We say that, let him touch it, he'll figure it out. And so what's happened is that child has refused to believe us, right? They refuse to believe our, our word of wisdom, our words of advice, and so they touch it, and what happens? They get burned. And so here's my point on that. If we disbelieve or refuse to believe what God is telling us is true in his word over and over again, there's a sense in which we can become hard-hearted or calloused or hard-headed about what God is telling us to know and believe and do. And so in that way, many people fall into this life of disbelief, which if you're not careful and you claim to be a Christian and you fall into a life of constant disbelief of God's word, you might find yourself walking down a path where you realize, or not, you never truly were a Christian, right? Because if you continue to disbelieve God's word, that's not what a Christian does, right? And so we must be careful not to disbelieve God. And what are some things we could disbelieve? Well, how about this? Maybe this morning you're struggling and you say, Deep, you wouldn't say it out loud, but deep down you might think, does God truly love me and care for me? And I'm reminded of what John Owen said, the Puritan. He said, the worst thing a Christian can do is doubt the love of the Father for his child. And so we must never disbelieve that truth that God loves his own. How about that he will provide for you? Paul wrote in Philippians that God will supply everything you need according to Christ or in Christ. So whatever it is that God says, we must believe. And if we disbelieve, we can quench the spirit. The second one is disobedience. And that's very similar. If we continue to disobey what God's told us to do and not walk by the spirit, we can become callous 
to the truth, right? If we continue living in our own power, our own strength, instead of following his power, his strength, and his leading, then over and over again, we'll find ourselves being like the hard-headed child that wants to touch the hot stove. That's why Paul said in Galatians, I've been crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ lives in me. That's why Paul said in another place, I die daily. Because he knew he had to, if he was going to be obedient, he only could be obedient through the working of the Spirit of God in his life. It is a hopeless aim for me and you to say, I'm going to be the best Christian I can be in 2024, and I'm pretty sure I can do it on my own power, right? That would be insane, right? If you want to be the best Christian you can be in 2024, it's going to come through, I'm going to say, three primary ways. Get into the Word, pray, and be a part of the church, right? And that's only going to happen, all that's only going to matter. By the way, the reading only really matters if the Spirit is guiding you. And the church worship only matters if the Spirit is in us. And so we must obey Him. A third one, a third area we might, that might quench the Spirit is disunity. And I think this relates to this very passage because we, we saw last time about up in verses 12 and so on about how there should be peace among the brothers and there should be encouragement among the church. And so it may be very well that verse 19 is speaking about that disunity they had experienced there in their church. And so we can say, we can say based on that that it might be that I'm quenching the spirit in my own life by things I do or don't do or believe or don't believe. But is it possible I could also quench the spirit in someone else's life by discouraging them or hindering them in some way? Wouldn't that be a terrible thought to think I have the ability to hinder someone's walk with Christ if I am mean to them or I'm discouraging to them or something like that? That's a very terrible thing to think about. And probably most of us have experienced that in one way or another where someone has discouraged you in your walk with Christ. And it could be anybody. I've had family members discourage me in my walk with Christ in the past. When I first started getting faithful to church, I remember people saying like, why are you always at church? <laughs> why are you taking five people with you to church every time you go? You don't have the gas money to be running around town picking up five friends to take to church. How about this? You can't read the Bible in one year. That's, don't even try it. What if you went to work this week and said, hey, 2024 is my year. I'm going to read the Word of God, get in it. I'm going to read it in a year. I'm going to start early in December so that I can get ahead like Junior does. And what if they say, that's dumb. You're never going to make it. That's useless. And I hope they wouldn't say that. And that's an extreme example. But I pray that not only are we guarding against quenching the Spirit in our own life, but to make sure we're not quenching the Spirit in anyone else's life as well. So whether it is disbelief, disobedience, or disunity, each of these can put out the fire. I remember this too, being a youth pastor for many years. By the way, last week someone said, you dress like a youth pastor. I was for a long time. What does that mean anyway? My pants were not skinny or anything. Regular pants. Anyway, they, I remember being a youth pastor and you would take kids to like a camp or retreat and those things weren't always great, but there were some good parts um, of Bible study and I believe some real life change in some of those, but it never failed. It never failed in my experience. When you would get back to the regular church, 
and those kids would try to share their excitement, almost immediately, the adults in the church would just like quench their fire. It, it seemed to happen a lot. Maybe one week it'd be all right, and then, you know, get, get away from us. And I always said if the excitement that the youth had could have infiltrated the rest of the church, the church probably could have grown uh, spiritually. May it not be said of us that we quench the Spirit of God. How is it being quenched? I mentioned the disbelief, disobedience, disunity. We'll look at verse 20. Uh, yeah, verse 20. This is our second point. Maybe, and I think likely, it was being quenched as people despised prophecy. Verse 2, do not despise prophecy. I'm sorry, verse 20, point number 2. And so when we think about prophecy here, of course our mind immediately probably goes to Old Testament uh, prophets who would say things like this. Israel, if you don't get your act together, right, God's going to punish you. And they would make these prophetic foretellings of what's going to happen in the future. That was prophecy in the Old Testament. And as we, as we mostly think prophecy, that's the word we think of. But the use of prophecy here is more closely related to what Paul used over in 1 Corinthians. And I'll quote uh, that verse here in a moment when I, when I get to it. But it's more about prophecy here means telling the will of God. And so it really doesn't matter if it's past, present, or future. The point of the word prophecy here is displaying and, and declaring the very word of God. And so we believe that the 66 books you hold in your hand, which make up the Holy Bible, we believe that is the canon of Scripture, the standard of Scripture, and so that no other book is on par with this book, correct? This morning my son is in Pennsylvania, I believe at a, a Catholic church. He's already, uh, even since we started earlier, sent me a message about some questions about the church he's attending this morning, which that's good for him to see some different experiences. But that church, for example, probably adds other books besides just the 66, right, to what they believe, as well as other things that men have said. We believe, or I'm showing you here, that we're not to despise the prophecy, and that means not to despise the telling forth of the truth of God's word. So this is not prophecy like I'm predicting the future. This is prophecy as in, here's what God's word says, believe it, obey it. In that way, I'm prophesying this morning, or I'm giving prophecy in the sense of teaching the scripture. And all believers, by the way, can do that as they share scripture. And so this reminds me, and maybe this was happening in Thessalonica, that there really is no such thing as new truth, right? If someone comes before you and says, I got something new, it's, it's better than the Bible, then that's garbage, right? You should not listen to that. As a matter of fact, I would run from that. If someone says, or if I turn on the TV or see a, a TikTok video or YouTube video, online video that says, here's a new truth for you, I'm just going to keep scrolling. Unless I want to hear what ridiculous stuff he's going to say. There's no new truth. There's the truth. This week I was talking to a friend about some different denominations and community groups. And even we, we even got off onto some cults. And one thing we, I discovered as we talked was that every single group we were talking about does not use the Bible as their authority and standard. And as soon as someone, a Christian denomination, a, obviously a cult, a community group, as soon as any group does not have the Bible as their standard, there is no end to where they might end up, or no telling where they might end up. 
And so we believe that this prophecy here is teaching God's word to, as Paul said in 1 Corinthians, to build up the saints. As a matter of fact, 1 Corinthians 14, 3, he says, The one who prophesies speaks to men for edification, exhortation, and consolation. So, in short, these prophetic utterances are meant to encourage and comfort believers. And that's what the Word of God does, and that's what we do as we share the Word. So, it's my thought here, and I think I'm backed up uh, on saying this, that there were people in the city of Thessalonica who were coming in saying some wrong things. Probably giving some wrong prophecy or some wrong teachings, and most likely related to the second coming of Christ, whether they might say, you know, those people that have died already, they're going to miss out on the blessings of the second coming, or we're already in the day of the Lord, and, you know, whatever it was, was there was certainly some, as there were in all these churches that Paul wrote to, some false teaching going on. And so he says, and we're going to get to that in a moment, but he says, you, believer, do not despise, do not shun away from the truth. But take the truth as I've written it to you, interpret it, and apply it to your life as best you can by the help of the Spirit. And in so doing, in so doing, you will not quench the Spirit. See how I think these verses work together, verse 19 and 20? If you will receive the word and not despise it, then you will walk by the Spirit and not quench the Spirit. Again, I, I said a moment ago, but well, let me just go to the next thing, verse 21. How do we do it? How do we make sure we're not despising the prophecy? Well, a couple ways. First, what should we do? We should test everything, prove all things, examine all things, and hold fast to that which is good. This is that thought of spiritual discernment which we, we have, we, we want to be able to know, is this right, is this wrong, is this true, is this false? Um, and then as I, I was looking at that, I, I ran back to Acts 17 in a verse that's very sad for me because I've been studying Thessalonians for a few months and put, trying to put myself in their place. And in Acts 17, 11, listen to what the scripture says. It says, the Berean Jews were of more noble character than those in Thessalonica, for they received the message with great eagerness and examined the scriptures every day to see if what Paul said was true. Like a, kind of a slap in the face at the Thessalonians. The Bereans over here, they're receiving the word. They're examining the word to see if what Paul says is true. Carefully, they're examining it. They're proving it, verse 21. More than those in Thessalonica. Kind of a sad... A sad point there for them. It's clear that the people in Thessalonica were not receiving the word and examining things as they ought to do. And I know in our church, I think this is not a big issue for us because the people I know here that I get to hear talk all the time, we love examining the scripture, right? As a matter of fact, if we went to a church down the road that preached something that was, that was a little off, most people in here would probably catch it. I think. But there are many believers who you could take from this church to this church to this church and they might never notice a difference. Where you preach something it just goes over everybody's head, you know. 
because I'm thankful that we have people here who truly want to know and want to prove all things and examine the word. And, and then, of course, as he says there at the end, hold fast to that which is good. And I want to encourage all of us, and if you are mature in your faith and you know fully what you believe, then I think it's okay to listen to somebody you disagree with, right? Even somebody on TV or online, and kind of see where, where you think they're wrong, right? How that compares to Scripture. But I would also encourage our younger believers, our newer believers, to be careful how much of that you put into your heart, right? It's kind of like the Christmas vacation movie, which I think is the greatest Christmas movie of all time. When they're eating the turkey, remember that? What happens when he cuts in the turkey? And you're thinking if you, as you start watching the movie, they're probably going to throw it away and start over, right? Nope, what do they do? The next shot is they're cracking, it's like crunching on turkey. They just keep eating it. My point is, younger believers, anybody that doesn't feel secure in your faith as far as some of your beliefs, be careful how many TikTok videos and false teachers you listen to because that's like sitting there eating that nasty turkey, right? And you need to be eating good, whole, biblical food, not messed up turkey. So we examine the truth, verse 21, and we find what is good and we, as he says there, hold fast to it. We receive it, we hold fast to it, and we, we're thankful for it. Like my friend said, what are you going to preach about at Christmas time? Well, Jesus, right? Because and you might mention the angels or shepherds or Mary, you might mention these other things, but you better be coming back to Christ on every sermon, not just at Christmas. And so we hold fast to that truth and the main truth that we proclaim. Well, 22. And by the way, I still think these are all related to one another, all together. So as you hold fast to that which is good, what else should you do? So that you don't despise prophecies and that you don't quench the spirit. You, you examine things, you hold fast that which is good, 22, and you abstain from every appearance of evil. I thought about a, a, a couple of biblical examples here. Remember when David saw Bathsheba? Did he flee from that? Or did he dive in? He didn't flee, right? And then compare that to Joseph and Potiphar's wife. What did Joseph do? He took off, right? And the scripture says to abstain from all appearance of evil. I was reading an interesting uh, article this week. Some people take this verse 22 when it says appearance of evil, and they say you can actually get involved with evil, that's fine. Just abstain from the appearance of evil. <laughs> and I was like, that makes no sense whatsoever. And that's why you'll see a lot of times that word appearance is translated as the word kinds of evil. Avoid every kind of evil. Stay away from everything that is evil. In other words, if we're going to walk by the Spirit and not quench Him, if we're going to um, accept the truth and not despise the truth, if we're going to examine all things and hold fast, it's going to be helped by abstaining from every kind of evil in our lives. I tell kids all the time, right? If you put junk into your life, if you're around that kind of stuff, it's going to come out. You hang out with the wrong crowd, right? We've all said that to our kids, haven't we? You hang out with the wrong crowd, they can pull you down. Abstain from all appearance of evil. So whatever that might look like for us, and again, in this context, I think he's saying, hey, when you hear that false doctrine, get away from it. But I think it also can apply to any kind of evil. Let's go to our third point. So do not quench the spirit. Do not despise prophecies. And with verse 23, we see this, do trust our faithful God. 
and he gives us this benediction in verse 23, this prayer that we've been reading, by the way, for months as our benediction here. And it's speaking here, may the God of peace sanctify you completely and totally and wholly. To sanctify means that God makes us more like Christ and less like the world. It means he makes us more Christ-like. And God does that through his word, through his Holy Spirit. And notice here that he says, you're sanctified whole spirit, soul, and body, which means the material part of us, which are bodies, and the immaterial part of us, our soul. So that all of us is walking in the spirit toward sanctification. By the way, that's what God is doing. He didn't save you just to leave you like you are, right? It doesn't matter if you've been saved for five years, one year, or 50 years. He has saved us to continue to sanctify us until he returns. Or we go to be with him. So we can say it this way. There's salvation when we put our faith in Christ, trusting his sacrifice on the cross. The spirit regenerates our hearts. There's that salvation that happens, that conversion. Then we can say there's that process of sanctification that we're in now. And one day there will be glorification. Where he will make us complete and whole. Trust our faithful God. He will do it. Verse 24. Somebody needs to, probably needs to think on this verse this morning. God who calls you. The God who calls you. The God who loves you. The God who saves you. The God who is your father. He will do it. Do you know somebody? We all do. We all know people who, who are not dependable or not trustworthy. And nobody we know, the most dependable person in your life is probably not trustworthy 100% of the time, right? Even your best friend or spouse or whoever, we can, either, we can let each other down, right? Verse 24 says, he is faithful, always faithful. Another place says when we are faithless, right, he is faithful. Everything God says is certain, everything he does is certain. He is 100% reliable, 100% of the time. Answer me, church. Can God fail? Can God falter? Does God change or does God disappoint? No, no, and no. God promotes what is true, what is faithful, and helps us to accept and believe those things. Verse 25, as we conclude here, he says, Brethren, pray for us. Paul wanted these, this church, even in their faults, uh, their faults, their mistakes, their imperfection, he said, pray for us. And my thought on that is this, if the Apostle Paul needed the Thessalonians', the Thessalonians prayers, how much do we need each other's prayers? And so be willing to say, hey, pray for me, and I'll pray for you, and actually pray. Paul said, he said, pray for us. Verse 26 Greet all the brethren with a holy kiss. This is one of those verses I'm so glad that we don't literally follow this morning. No offense. Um, but they did. And some places in the world still do this, right? And other places, they walk up and do a little side kiss on the cheek. I'm not about that life. Sorry, Nick. Uh, I'm sure you're the same, in the same boat with me. Um, not about that. But for us, we know that's contextual, right? Contextual. For us, that means usually a handshake. A hug, 
a fist bump. During COVID, it was just a wave, right? But the point of it is this, right? It's the fellowship. It's the greeting. It's the love for one another. So don't get caught up on, on that verse, although it's interesting. And if you believe completely literal all the way through, you know, start kissing. But make sure it's a holy kiss, it says. Verse 27, I charge you by the Lord that this epistle be read unto all the holy brethren. He was so adamant, as he concludes here, make sure you read this to the whole church, right? The brothers, the church need to hear this. I charge you, he says. And then he says, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. That familiar benediction from Paul, God's grace be with you. Because everything I've said to you is good and it's true and it's right, but apart from God's grace helping you apply it, it's not going to matter. The, the doctrines, everything, apart from God's grace working in your life, the other stuff's not going to matter. As I go back to 23, the, the verse, there, verse 23, he says, May God sanctify you until the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. And we can't leave 1 Thessalonians without thinking about that second coming because it's in every verse. The coming of our Lord, the day of the Lord. And thinking on that, as I wanted to conclude, there's an old quote. See if y'all have seen this quote before. I'm not sure who said it. Only one life shall soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. You ever seen that? I think it's a good quote. It's telling us, hey, you have one life to live. Until you die or he comes back, your house is not going to matter, is it? Your bank account is not going to matter. All the, the, the stuff we have, our beautiful church building will one day be gone. Like it's not, all this stuff will not matter. What matters is what we do for Christ. What matters is what's eternal, which is souls and God and his word. I mean, what else is eternal besides God, His Word, and the souls of mankind? What else is eternal? So there's a great quote here, and I'm kind of applying it to verse 23. Until Christ returns, may He sanctify us. And so I kind of edited the quote. Or I think I may, I may have seen this before in the past. I didn't make this up. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done, and see the edit? by Christ, instead of for Christ, only what's done by Christ will last. To know, verse 23, that God sanctifies us, verse 24, He will do it, and verse 28, His grace be with you as He does it. Let's pray. As you bow for just a moment of prayer.